Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. I am Ben Myers. I'm your host. And today we're joined by a special guest host. Mr. Steve Cameron is not here today. We have Mark Fogliato. Nice to be here. Thanks, Ben. Uh, thanks. So, Mark. So, Mark, give us the give us the two sentence. Uh, what, what do you do? You're a little bit of a real estater, a little bit of a marketer. What's going a on? A little bit of both. Yeah. So, uh, main gig is uh, I work for a commercial developer based in Oakville called Kingridge Developments. Um, main product type we're doing is a lot of commercial condominiums, uh, Oakville. Um, Hamilton, Guelph, those types of markets. Um, and then we do a little bit of marketing as well. Uh, my brother has a company that I'm involved in. Um, we do digital marketing, primarily focused on the real estate industry. And then recently we took over and relaunched uh, a big industry magazine called uh, REM or Real Estate Magazine, which is um, one of the biggest trade publications for residential realtors in Canada. Nice, nice. All right. Well, we have a guest to introduce. Would you would you like to read the bio or would you like me to read the bio, Mark? I'll leave you to read the bio. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Today's guest brings a wealth of experience and knowledge to the podcast. Having previously served as the president of Great Golf Residential, he's also a prominent member of the community, having served as the chair of the Design Exchange, the governor of the North York General Hospital Foundation and co-chair of the Canadian Cancer Society. In 2018, Chris joined Lantera Developments as the chief operating officer and is responsible for overseeing the operations of the Construction Management Services Division. Welcome to the show, Christopher Wine. Thank you. Great to be here. <laughs> we appreciate you uh, traveling to the east side. We're in the uh, party room uh, here and got some great views of, uh, of downtown. So, Chris, why don't you give us a little bit of your your backstory? How did you get into uh, the uh, the real estate industry and uh, and give us a little little bit of flavor? Sure. So uh, I've been doing this for about uh, just over twenty five years. I started uh, really in construction um, at the very bottom. So I bootstrapped my way up. Uh, I was uh, originally I'm originally from Toronto, but I headed west when I was uh, in my late teens uh, to pursue um, life in the mountains and ended up ultimately settling in Calgary where I got into construction, got into development. I ended up uh, running uh, a few different uh, large development companies that were active throughout Western Canada and into the Pacific Northwest. I did that for about 15 years. Uh, then I got a phone call to come back to Toronto uh, and uh, run Great Golf, uh, who also was very active uh, here in the GTA, but also throughout the United States. Did that for several years uh, and then joined uh, Lantera as a partner um, just about five, six years ago. So uh, I've developed in approximately 15 states uh, across the U.S. Wow. as well as uh, five provinces in Canada okay. uh, and every asset class uh, imaginable. And so was that under the Ashton Woods brand in so, the United so States? So Ashton Woods was part of Great Golf, but we also uh, took, uh, we also started to do more high rise. So, uh, so we went into Palm Beach, we went into Washington. Washington, D.C. We were doing stuff in Texas, uh, as well as a number of other areas. And then previously, when I was still out west, uh, I developed in California, Montana, Nevada, uh, again, uh, Colorado, uh, was back in Texas. So 
How, uh, how much does the game change from all these different locations? Uh, pretty significantly. So uh, it depends what you're doing. So, you know, I was doing everything from subdivisions and housing all the way up to um, high rise resort property, uh, commercial properties. Uh, I would say that the biggest difference that we see between the GTA and uh, the U.S. is in the condo market. The, the U.S. condo market is very uh, slim. Uh, the majority of, of uh, high-rise residential that's done in the U.S. is uh, multifamily or rental product. Uh, and it's really just a matter of how financing's done. Um, what's unusual about Canada, and especially the GTA, is that we can uh, utilize purchaser deposits as part of our capital stack. Uh, in most states in the U.S., you can't do that. So really, Florida is the only state that behaves uh, like Toronto. Uh, and then from across uh, Canadian perspective, uh, there is no market in Canada that is as active as the Toronto market. The the immigration is just so strong here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we know, it you know we're increasing Canadian immigration to half a million people a year, but more importantly, 70% uh, of immigrants that come to Canada reside in the GTA. Uh, and that's huge. And, you know, the U.S., what we found interesting is is much more, uh, there's much more mobility. So you don't have one or two cities dominating the U.S. And even with Lanterra, we're doing some projects uh, in the New York area. Uh, but again, New York uh, is not Toronto. And what I mean by that is Toronto absorbs 70% of the population uh, coming in. If New York did the same thing, New York would be 75 million people, <laughs> not 12 million people. Of course. So, uh, so we really are, you know, Toronto's very unique when it comes to uh, uh, the condo market, but just in general, the development market is just so robust here. Uh, you you really have to compare it more like a European capital. So I actually think there's more similarities between London and Toronto than there are between a U.S. city and Toronto. Interesting. I, th- I think I've told the story in the podcast before, but uh, you know, Tricon was was back when they were doing a lot more equity deals. Was looking to bring Toll Brothers, you know, the big yes. public company, into into Canada, and they were giving them the pitch, and they were like, well. We want to meet with some other people that are not you guys, right? And I'm like, well, you got to talk to Ben. He's the, you know, he's the expert on the Toronto condo market. And so I was going over how, you know, we get 70%, 80% of the units will sell in six months, six to nine months. <laughs> Different now. I mean, those projects will sell in a 80, 90% of the, the in, a, in, a, in a weekend. Well, at least up until April, uh, and they just couldn't wrap their heads around that investors were buying these units and they were all 500 to 700 square feet with the intent of, of renting them out. They just didn't think it was real. They, they thought it was a, you know, a temporary thing that wasn't going to last. And this was, you know, 10, 11 years ago. So I imagine, uh, you know, the, the, the dev- uh, I mean, we haven't had hardly any American developers come up and, and try to tackle the, the, the Toronto housing market. But maybe a question about Dallas. I think when I, I actually uh, so I used to live in Dallas, I was looking at the, the product that you had offering there. And they were all like massive suites, though. Weren't they like 2,000 square feet or yes, something like that? absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So it was more, I think the condo market there is very much a, a luxury condo market, right? S- similar to Miami, most of the U.S. So if you look at the, the main condo markets, uh, it's really Miami and the New York area, uh, a little bit of California, uh, and then a little bit in Texas. But the difference, the, the big difference between U.S. and Canada is in the U.S., the majority majority of apartment dwellers are renters. 
Um, so you get purpose-built rental. So in the U.S., about 65% uh, of Americans are homeowners, whereas in Canada, it's closer to 78%. So that's yeah. a massive gap. Yeah. And what ends up happening is in the U.S., because there's so many renters uh, and renters for life, you end up getting institutional developers and large-scale developers. They want to build rental because they're not they're not merchant builders. They're not building to sell. They're building to hold long-term. Uh, and that's that's a very different financing model. And that's why like Relateds come up here and looked around. Uh, HFZ has come up here and looked around. There's a few New York guys who've come up, taken a look, and, and, <laughs> and they look at the model and they're like, this is, we're not really merchant builders. We don't want to build to sell. We yeah. want to build to hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people forget that. Like, even when you look at the groups like Toll Brothers, Related, et cetera, um, you know, they'll build some luxury condominiums. But I remember meeting with one of the groups in New York and we were talking about how many condominiums. They said, oh, we have about a thousand units of condominium under construction. I said, oh, we have about 3000 units. They're like, great. They're like, how much rental do you have under construction? I'm like a few hundred. They're like, oh, we have 10,000. <laughs> um, and that's the difference is they look at their condo portfolios as, as just a thin edge of the wedge. Maybe 10 or 15% of their business is condo huh. and 80 to 90% of it is rental. Um, here in Canada, we're the exact opposite. So, and it's really just comes down to financing models. Yeah, interesting. The, the projects you're doing in New York, what kind of projects are those? Yeah. Multifamily. So we're yeah. doing a 500 unit project uh, in Jersey City. Mm-hmm. So right on the path. Um, so the path is basically their um, go train. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's fantastic, we're in an area called Journal Square. So within 18 minutes uh, train ride from our site, you're in Wall Street. Uh, and within 24 minutes, you're in Midtown Manhattan. Um, and it's it's similar to you know our suburban communities here. Um, rents in Manhattan are about $85 a foot uh, per year. They, they annualize rent in the US. Uh, Brooklyn is about $65 and Jersey is in the $50 range. So for a $30 savings, you're an 18 minute train ride away. We, I stayed I stayed in Jersey City one time and it was kind of interesting because it's one of those, those cities where a lot of, uh, or areas with a lot of commercial and then they've allowed, now they've allowed residential, right? So it's just this complete reimagining of the entire, Absolutely. entire city, right? Yeah. So yeah, kind of fascinating. So. So let's, 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 I guess let's fast forward, um, you know, uh, great golf. Maybe talk a little bit about, do you have a favorite project that you did there? I know you worked on some of well, the, one the biggest deals one, in one, the city. One, one, <laughs> one Bluer, uh, I was very proud of One Bluer East. I think it's a fantastic building. Um, it's, it's still, uh, you know, I think architecturally is very striking. Uh, I also think that uh, Moaned, which is down on the water, which is the Moisture Safety building. Uh, I think it's the only Moisture Safety building in, in Toronto. Uh, fantastic. It's one of the best looking condos, uh, I think, on, on the skyline. Uh, and then I think, uh, you know, the Geary project that's coming up. I yeah. did the original land purchase, uh, negotiated that deal. Wow. Uh, and I think that's going to be fantastic. And yeah. I think the partners there, Westdale and Dream, uh, along with Great Golf, are, are really doing something special. Um, I'm very proud of the launch they had. Uh, and I'm a big supporter. So yeah. uh, can't wait for that building to come out of the ground. And then from a Lanterra perspective, um, I bought a site. Uh, a couple of years ago, a block north uh, of that site. So we're at 263 Adelaide, the Natasha project. Um, so it's kind of cool because, you know, after doing the Geary negotiation, obviously I'm not part of that project anymore, but it's nice to be building something a block away. Um, and that's a great just, site you have there. It's a great, thank you. And it's just such a great neighborhood. So, so I think, you know, the entertainment district continues to diversify. Uh, I think with the well, uh, it's fantastic because now it's becoming a full mixed use neighborhood. It's part 
part of the financial core. It's not just mm-hmm. bars and restaurants anymore. So I, that's an area of the city that I think you know people should pay more attention to. Uh, and I, I, we're going to look to do more projects in that area because I think it's no longer just young, uh, you know, millennials. Uh, living in condos, I think that's going to become the mature area that will rival places like Yorkville. Yeah. And it seems like with the, uh, um, with the film festival, a lot more people are staying in King West and the entertainment district than they are in Yorkville during, during, during the festival. Absolutely. Stars, right. Yeah. So. Well, you've got some great hotels, you've got some great restaurants, but you also now like have serious office buildings going in. I think, I think the city is migrating to the West when it comes to the financial core. Well, I guess that's a, a good, a good question to just to jump in there before you tell us about Lanterra, uh, you know, office space. What, 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 what's your thoughts? Are people going to return to the office full time? Are we going to have this, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday thing that we seem to be having now at downtown and people working from home on, on the Mondays and Fridays or, 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 you know, you as a, someone that employs a lot of people, are you going to start cracking the whip, get everyone come in five days a week? Yeah. So it's interesting. So, um, so with Lantera, we started, we brought people back, uh, over a year ago. So all of our staff are full-time in the office. Uh, remote work for us is, is an exception. Uh, it's, it's not the norm. Um, did I, you get a lot of pushback on that? We, we really didn't. I think, you know, people in the construction and development industry want to, you know, it's a very tangible industry. Uh, you know, we're building real stuff and I think people want to be in an office and it's not like the digital world. Uh, but that being said, I sit on a number of boards, uh, as you said, including Canadian Cancer Society and such, and we're working on our back to work plans or back to the office. Uh, plans for 2023. Uh, And, you know, most of the companies that I'm affiliated with, we are bringing people back, you know, three to four days a week uh, for next year. And we plan on making that five days a week uh, thereafter. What I find interesting and kind of comical, because I do spend a lot of time in the core, um, is people might only be working three days a week in the core, but for some reason during happy hour, the bars and restaurants are packed (laughs) Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So are people working remote and then heading downtown for happy hour? I'm not sure the answer, but I was uh, at CIBC's new headquarters yesterday uh, to give a a presentation um, and it was packed. The entire downtown was packed and it took me almost an hour to drive from CIBC Square back to Yorkville uh, during rush hour. So it's, downtown is more vibrant than we think and it's more resilient. I think from an office perspective, what's changing is that, uh, and you know, touring CIBC's new office, everything is hotel. Uh, nobody has an office, nobody has a desk. Uh, I think the footprint that employers are going to require as they head to the return to work is going to change. So I think people will be back down. Uh, so I don't think the people are the issue, but I do think that office space will shrink um, compared to what they had before because yeah. the, 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 the amount of square foot per employee is not what it used to be. So people just pack up the laptop, put it in their bag and leave a, a clean desk when they leave. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and it actually seems like a very dynamic model that works well. I think the other thing for those of us in the mixed use business is, you know, most of our projects now have an office component. Um, so 11 Wellesley, we had, you know, 65,000 feet of office. Artist Alley, uh, which is right by the U.S. Embassy, we have uh, almost 70,000 feet of commercial. Uh, oh. Natasha, we have 35,000 feet of commercial. So I actually think 
boutique commercial is the future. So mm-hmm. putting commercial into the podium of high rise buildings, the first, you know, three to 10 stories. Uh, so not 50 story office towers, but more boutique office towers where people can aren't rely, reliant on elevators. Uh, they can use the stairs. They can have, you know, fewer tenants per building. Mm-hmm. I do think there's a big future there. So I actually think there'll be a premium for boutique office uh, in the core versus purpose-built million square foot towers. Uh, and you guys are going to own this? Uh, we do, yeah. So, so our, say, say, uh, Mark has the, the condo uh, yeah, office. Yeah, we do a lot so. of commercial condos, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you let the uh, commercial tenants use all the residential amenities? We don't. So we, we do keep them separate. So we keep everything separate. So the only thing that, that stays consistent is the underground. Um, so the, the parking structures, but separate lobbies, separate entrances, separate elevator cores, uh, and separate amenities where we, where we are sharing amenities is we now have buildings. Uh, and this is going to be more and more our trend is where we have both rental units and condo units combined. So a good example of that is the Brit, which is the old Sutton place hotel that we redeveloped so uh there's 500 just over 500 condo units and just under 100 purpose-built rental units which we continue to own uh they share amenities okay, so interesting uh which which i think is a it's probably the future and even when we think of things like inclusionary zoning uh and more affordable housing it's really mixing market units with affordable units uh the only way that that's feasible economically is you're going to have to share amenities for yeah. sure and is it all condominiumized and you just own those condos and you rent them out or is it a, a separate condo it's, corp it's no for the for the purpose-built rental, it's a separate, uh, severed fee simple, uh, you know, um, uh, structure. So the 80 units that are rental are just one title as, as a fee simple commercial title. Uh, and then there's, there's easement agreements to be able to use each other's amenities. And then the condos are condos. So, well, you mentioned obviously a bunch of your projects land here is going to maybe give us the the, the uh, 10,000 square foot view. You know, I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast are going to know who Lantera is, but, uh, you know, give us the give us the uh, the overview. Sure. So um, so right now, what's interesting about Lantera, and we were talking about it a bit before the podcast started, because um, we were talking a little bit about sales. We don't have a lot for sale right now because uh, we're in construction mode. So we have a just over 5,000 units under construction right now. Wow. Uh, we are self-performing. So Lantera has its own construction company yep. uh, and has had it for over 20 years. I think that's vital, by the way. I think the future of development in Toronto for those big developers, ourselves, Greg Golf, Menkes, you know, Minto, Tridel, et cetera, you need to be your own construction company. I don't think you can re- rely on a third party. It's just margins are getting too tight. Uh, but that being said, we have thousands of units under construction. Uh, within market, we really only have two projects that we're actively marketing. They're both luxury projects. One uh, called Glen Hill, which is at Bathurst and Glen Cairn, small boutique project, 125 units. Uh, units range from a million to seven and a half million dollars. Uh, so a user market uh, doing very well right now in market because uh, those folks don't care about interest rates. <laughs> Similarly, we have 50 Scholard, uh, and I'm proud to say of 50 Scholard, in the last six months, we've sold uh, two units uh, over uh, $10 million. Wow. Um, actually, really in the last three months. Um, so between 10 and $20 million. Again, they're not interest rate sensitive buyers. Uh, and, and that luxury market has actually been more active in the last six months than we've ever seen it. Uh, and 
part of the, you know, my sort of uh, uh, hypothesis on this is that people see that there's a little bit of a lull right now in the Toronto condo market and the tr- Toronto housing market. And I think those luxury buyers who are not affected by interest rates are saying, hey, why wouldn't I buy now when it feels like a lull, even though they're buying at 22, 2300 a foot? Uh, I think they're thinking, you know, if I don't buy now, within two years, it's going to be 3000 a foot. And it's going to be back to this sort of very overheated market. So um, so I think, you know, uh, the Geary Project sold their penthouse. I think it was around $20 million again in the last few months. Right. So so I do think the savvy buyer uh, that doesn't need to borrow money uh, is thinking now's a good time to invest in Toronto. Um, and this, this, by the way, this lull, uh, I don't think is going to last much longer. Like we're maybe six more months and then things are going to start to heat up again. Yeah, we have an insatiable appetite for pre-construction condominiums in this market. Every time I think this is the this is it, this is the end, this is when uh, when things turn. As you know, as everyone does the calculations, okay, you're buying at X, and you know you need this much to break even on uh, on uh, the rent per square foot, and it continues to not make sense. Yet the 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 units continue to go up and uh, go up in price. So it will be interesting to see if. Uh, if rates do come down and, um, you know, kind of the word word I'm hearing is investors seem to be balking on anything that's that's completing in 2023 or 2024, but they're still extremely bullish on buying pre-construction that's going to occupy in 2025 and 2026 because they think the interest rates are going to come back down. They think there's going to be a lack of, uh, of completions at that point in time because of uh, slower sales in, uh, you know, the second half of 2022. So they're, they're pretty excited about that. So it'll be inter- it's an interesting dynamic out there, certainly when I'm, you know, hearing from some of the, some of the brokers, right? Absolutely. Well, they, you know, the key with investors is they're buying futures for lack of, you know, th- that's the best way to describe it. Yeah. So they're not speculators. They are true investors. They want to buy. Uh, they're going to keep their product. They're going to rent it. Uh, they're looking for equity appreciation on the long term, whether that's five years, 10 years, 15 years. Uh, but, you know, really what they're looking at is is everything is, is basically based on are things going to be better or worse than they are today? And I think that six months ago, uh, if you looked at the market and you started to see these interest rate hikes of, you know, up a percentage point at a time, uh, people were looking at it going, okay, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to step off the gas because, you know, where's this going to end? You know, are we going to end up at 10% prime rate, 12%, 13%? So, so it, it, you know, and I would say six months ago, if you were a betting person and you said, where do you think prime's going to stop? your guess could be anywhere from five to 10. Now, you know, fast forward and you look at it and you see what Bank of Canada is doing in the Fed Reserve. Both are slowing down. They're both actively signaling that, you know, basically we're over the peak. The end is near. So now if you were a betting person and you said, listen, you know, in three years, do you think interest rates are going to be above six or below six, you'd say below, but you certainly wouldn't have said that three or four months ago. So that's why this market kind of goes through its fluctuations. It's really looking forward. Similarly with condo prices, you know, six months ago, you looked at condo prices and said, you know, is it possible that prices might go down in the next two years? Perhaps. Now you look at it and say, okay, things are stabilizing. There's not a lot of inventory. Uh, there's no new supply coming on board. You know, the big the big players like the land terrorists and such, they're not launching anything. Uh, so how and we have immigration coming into record levels. So absolutely, if you're again a betting person, you would bet that two to three years from now, prices are going to be up. So if you're an investor and you can buy taking delivery in 2027, 2028. 
I think you got a home run. If I agree with you, if you need to take delivery in 2023, you might, you know, be a little bit less, uh, uh, enthusiastic yeah so it's, it's kind of funny we i uh, was watching a interview and this is probably six or seven years ago and and, and and barry fenton was on and he was like oh within two years prices are going to be across the board a thousand bucks a foot and i'm like and i'm a pretty bullish guy and i was i was like oh my god this guy's uh <laughs> you know smoking the smoking the lettuce here right and then exactly two years later i think the average in the city hit a thousand bucks a foot for pre-construction so he was completely nailed at 100 percent on so uh so pretty pretty unbelievable but uh uh, Mark, did you, did you have a question? Yeah, uh, no, I was just going to say to that point, like I, I remember it wasn't that long ago, maybe six years ago, you and I were talking about people launching projects in the east end of Toronto and, and suggesting they were going to get 650 a foot and us telling them that uh, they were crazy, <laughs> right? Like absolutely crazy, <laughs> yeah. right? But uh, it's it's amazing what the market's done in that time. Yeah, when we, I think it was 2013 and uh, I told Naram, who's a Carlisle develops, uh, develop, that I wanted to buy a unit from, from him for 600 bucks a foot. And he's like, that's fine. We can make, we can make that, we can make that a go. And then, yeah. Anyways, he sold the site, and I'm sure it was basically it's right. It was the um, what's the Peter and Richmond. Peter and Richmond. Yeah, yeah. yeah. great site. Yeah, that great site. Yeah. I just sold that, and I'm sure when it does launch, it'll be seventeen hundred bucks. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, I did want to ask about that. Do you guys um, are in partnership with uh, with Fengate Asset Management, and you've launched Lantera Living? So I wanted to make sure that we mentioned that. If you can tell us a little bit about that uh, program. Sure, absolutely. So um, yeah, and Fengate, by the way, are great partners. We're looking to do more stuff with them. They've been fantastic. Um, the, the, uh, with respect to land terror living, basically what we wanted to do is we wanted to, uh, profile, uh, give people a sense of the types of individuals who live in the buildings that we build. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we hear all about investors and so on. And, you know, we think, you know, there's a lot of rumors about offshore money and stuff like that. Uh, and I don't think people really get a genuine sense that these buildings are full of really dynamic, uh, millennials that, you know, are up and coming. They, you know, are striving, uh, to get ahead, uh, uh, and, and they're really dynamic people. So with Lanterra Living, we went out into the community and we found uh, a group of five individuals that fit that, you know, sort of upwardly mobile, you know, hardworking uh, millennial profile. Uh, and what we wanted to do is, is, is allow them to be ambassadors for the building. Uh, so all five of them have bought into the building. Uh, we gave them a little bit of assistance, uh, no price break, but we gave them assistance on structuring their deposit. Uh, cause again, they, they, you know, they got to kind of save as they go, uh, in exchange for the fact that they would be ambassadors and really talk about why they want to live, uh, in the entertainment district, what attracted them to a building like Natasha, uh, the types of amenities that, you know, uh, they desire and so on. And, and we use them also, um, you know, for some intelligence around, you know, what are the things that you, you know, are, are more valuable to you in a unit? What's more valuable to you as an amenity? You know, um, what, are, what are the types of things that would make your life, you know, that much more positive uh, living in one of our buildings? And, and we're going to continue with Lanterra Living. So the idea is that, um, you know, they're regularly featured on YouTube and on Instagram, and we do lots of uh, various interviews uh, and and videos with them. Uh, but we want to keep that program going. So even after the building's complete and they move in, we're going to continue to profile what's the day-to-day -day life uh, in a land terror building and what are the pros and cons and upsides and so on. And it's really meant to inspire, um, uh, you know, young individuals to, to, to strive for that, you know, dream of home, home ownership. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. I know we have, uh, you know, just so many people online that they, yeah, like I said, they think it's all investors. They think half the building is empty. They think it's all, you know, as they say, lock boxes for for <laughs> for foreigners. And uh, said so you should have you ever gone into one of these buildings and see that it's these buildings are completely filled up with people that are starting their careers and uh, and now more than ever, there's more babies in all these condo units than ever before because, you know, people can't afford to, to buy, uh, you know, a single family home <laughs> as, as they as they used to. Right. So, um, well, I think also a lot of people just because the condo markets come up so quickly, they've moved into these areas since they were 20. Right. And they don't want to leave them now that yeah. they're kind of having kids and, you know, into their uh, 30s and stuff yeah, like yeah, that. People get tied to the neighborhood. But, yeah, that's great. I mean, it's great that they can follow some of these people and <laughs> and see what their their lives are all about. So, yeah. Um, how did you uh, how did you find the five anyway? Uh, it, so, so, uh, we basically just, you know, used the community, uh, and, and looked for, um, you know, we did not quite additions that may be a little formal, but we kind of, you know, through like, uh, acquaintances and, and recommendations just, you know, um, kind of met with a number of different people and mm-hmm. we really were looking to create a cross section. So we wanted to make sure that, um, it was a diverse group that, that was, um, well, that well represented the diversity of Toronto. So we didn't want, um, you know, people that were of the same ethnicity and so on. It, it needed to really reflect the fact that Toronto is one of the most diverse cities in the world, which is part of what makes the neighborhood so great. Uh, I think the other thing that's important is, you know, as you mentioned, uh, both of you mentioned, um, you know, inner city living is amazing. I live in Yorkville myself. I, I am not a suburbanite. Uh, I have had suburban homes over the, you know, the course of my life, but, um, I really, really like what the inner city has to offer. I think there's just so much dynamism and, um, you know, you look at the shopping, the culture, the performing arts, the restaurants, uh, just the life on the street. Um, last night after my, um, uh, talk at CIBC, I actually walked home, uh, and it was, it was fantastic walking through Dundas Square at seven o'clock at night and, um, you know, everything's lit up and there's just energy on the street. Like, you know, there's, I think there's so many of us similar to Manhattan that just love that energy. And I don't think it's meant just for young people. I think, um, you can be, you know, of any age and any demographic and enjoy living in downtown Toronto. Uh, it's super safe. Um, and it's just, fantastic. So I, I do think, you know, originally the idea or the thesis was you were going to have all these young people, young millennials move into these areas like the entertainment district, um, Yorkville, Midtown, et cetera. And then when they got enough money uh, or mature enough or had families, they'd move to the suburbs. That actually hasn't happened. And even with respect to the buildings we build, um, we now put a huge emphasis on child play areas, uh, on stroller parking. Like we, we need to make these family friendly, friendly buildings buildings because families want to stay downtown. Kids want to be raised downtown. It's a fun place. Yeah. So Yeah. If we only figure out the daycare cost. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, there's this new $10 a day daycare, I guess that's supposed to be coming out. I, my kids are older than daycare, but I've heard mixed reviews if you can actually find it. But <laughs> So we, we do try to be a little bit topical on the show. Bill 23 just got its latest, uh, it's got its royal ascent now. Just your your high level thoughts. Do you think that's going to create more supply? Is it going to be easier on you guys? What what was your initial you know talks around the table about? Sure, it? Um, I think anything that that both provincial, well, all levels of government, federal, provincial, municipal, can do to to 
uh, both speed up approvals, uh, reduce costs that can be passed on the consumer, uh, and and open up more density and land is a positive. Like we we need to supply is an issue. the The only way you're going to help to cure affordability, and all of us want to see more affordable housing in the industry, you need to open up supply. I do think you know. For, from a you know, based on the fact that we're a downtown developer versus uh, a suburban developer, I do think Bill Twenty Three uh, has more benefits to suburban developers. Um, you know, and, and opening up things like the green belt and such. I'm not going to comment on because I'm I'm not a <laughs> not a single family builder anymore. Um, but you know, land needs to be uh, uh, you know you need to put everything uh, on the table if you're going to afford uh, or if you're going to cure affordability. And perhaps the green belt's one of those things you have to put on the table. With respect to downtown, um, you know, the, the, I would say the two or three things that affect us the most, uh, number one, uh, the amount of taxes and levies uh, that are put against an individual unit are huge. I think Bill has calculated that it's almost 30% of the cost of a condominium uh, goes to uh, taxes and levies. And I think people need to understand that and recognize that. And anything the province can do to help reduce DCs uh, or to offset DCs uh, with respect to affordable housing or rental housing is huge. It's very important. Uh, number two, I think that we do need more density across the board. Um, I don't understand you know, the difference between having a seven-story building on an avenue and a 12-story building. It's, you know, f- f- uh, from perception, there's no difference. The difference be- between a 40-story tower and a 50-story tower is imperceptible from the ground if you're walking on the sidewalk. So it's that incremental. Do I think we need 100-story buildings everywhere? Absolutely not. Uh, do I want to put 50-story buildings next to single-family housing? Absolutely not. But there's no reason why we can't move uh, to fourplexes and sixplexes. There's no reason why mid-rise can't go to 15 or 16 stories. And there's no reason why high-rise can't go from 40 to 50 or 50 to 60. Those incremental changes will be tremendous. Uh, and then the last thing is we need to speed up approvals. Uh, when I've, That's the biggest difference in all the cities that I've developed in across North America. Toronto is unfortunately the slowest city uh, to get approvals in. And, and time is money, as we know. Uh, and that's really unfortunate. It should not take two to three years to get a property rezoned or to get a site plan approved. Having uh, having worked in as many markets as you have, what do you think Toronto does differently on an approval side that slows it down? Is it just the volume of applications or do we do it no, differently? No, I think, that, I think there's uh, three issues. Um, so uh, the first issue is I, I think that um, when you're in, and I think we are in a crisis situation, when you're in a crisis situation, I think you need to have, uh, you know, like a housing czar. Um, so you need to have an office or an individual who's empowered uh, to make sure that approvals uh, push through and that, um, you know, the, 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 and what I mean by that is the challenges, we have a lot of individual interests. So, um, you know, we have heritage versus transportation versus engineering services versus planning versus urban design. And often they're at odds with one another. So <laughs> urban design and planning and, and transportation wants density in an area, but then heritage wants to protect a hundred year old building that has no uh, historical reverence, you know, other than it's old, it's meaningless. So we, that's where you need a czar that can basically say, okay, I get everybody's point of view, but this is the greater good. We're going to go 
ahead with this because that's more important uh, than these individual interests because individual interests never lead to, to, to a positive. Number two, I think that, um, you know, we... I would be a proponent of places, you know, like Calgary, Vancouver, most of the U.S., where uh, zoning is not, um, you know, done on an individual site basis. So you basically create a land use bylaw that says, you know, everything from on on Eglinton from Avenue Road to Bayview is from 20 to 50 stories, depending how close you get to transit. Uh, and then we're not arguing. First of all, it makes land values, uh, stabilizes them. And then you don't have this situation where I buy a site on Adelaide and I fight to get 47 stories and my competitor buys a site across the street and now he's in for 64 stories. And then down the street, Geary's doing 82 stories. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So that would take speculation out of it. It would level out land prices. It would allow the city of uh, Toronto to just focus on things like setbacks, urban design, and not worry about density. Density should just be an as of right, and they should just do an overall zoning plan for the entire city and really focus on transit areas. And then lastly, I'm going to say something controversial. Um, I don't think that the ward system of councillors is the most effective system when it comes to city building. I think it works in smaller uh, cities, but in a city like Toronto, a global city with um, significant uh, global infrastructure vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the GO train, uh, the new LRT, the subway system, the Ontario line, etc. Um, you can't think of the Ontario line or the Crosstown LRT as, okay, but I only worry about my ward. And when it crosses that boundary, then the next person can worry about it. It's like, no, no, we're putting in multi-billion dollars of infrastructure. And that entire line should have density all the way along it. And it shouldn't matter that it goes from one councillor to another. So I do think uh, that that the city would be better served by keep the 25 ward councillors, but like a lot of American cities, add another 10 or 12 at-large councillors that don't represent a ward. They just represent the greater good of the city. So that then everybody starts to work more towards what's best for the city in total as opposed to this is my little boundary. Um, and I think the strong the, the strong mayor powers are trying to head that direction. We'll see if they actually get utilized. Yeah, I always argued that uh, with all these, you know, issues with, you know, density and zoning and, you know, even getting down to some of the technical issues and public input, that process should happen up front when we're talking about big areas and full blocks. But on site-specific things, they really should just defer all that to the technical staff, the planning staff, all that, right? They're the ones dealing with it. I, I've always thought it's it's inefficient for, you know, councillors to be weighing in on every single little development that we want to do and to have public meetings on every single little project when, I mean, let's be honest, most of the time they don't understand most of the issues that they're, uh, they're fighting. They care about height, they care about zoning, but they end up fighting about all the other things just because that's something that they can attack. You were a popular radio DJ and then you get, now you're a counselor and now you're making decisions on an 80-story tower, right? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, and, and, and it's just, it's funny to be site-specific. Like, what you know, we used to talk about it uh, amongst my colleagues. Like, in, in other cities, they would literally say, okay, Bloor Street from uh, Young to Avenue or from Young, better yet, Young to Spadina all the way to Front, build anything you want. Height-wise, still respect setbacks, still respect tower separation, still respect good urban design and good pedestrian realm. But in that core, 
don't worry. It can be 50 stories, 70 stories, 90 stories. If it fits on the site, build it. Mm -hmm. um, and that would make so much more sense because there's no reason why a site at Bay and Wellesley, which we've done a lot of building at, uh, is treated any differently than you know, Bay and Gerard, but yet they are it just accidentally is, oh, well, I had a different counselor, a different this, different that, different nimbyism. That's ridiculous. It's all the financial core. It's all served by subway. It's all served by streetcar. It's all, it's, you know, everything's connected to Union Station. We should just build whatever we want. And, and that's what would, that's why Manhattan looks the way it does yeah. because they allow stuff to be built. There's no restrictions around like you know, uh, billionaire's way in, in central park, hundred stories, 120 stories, 150 stories. If you can afford to build it, build away. It's, yeah. it's, it's crazy. Yeah, focus I, more on what's going on at street level. Correct. And not I, what's going on yeah. in the 80th story. It, it blows my mind having, you know, worked in summer Hill that you could have 85 stories at young and Bloor. They'll fight the hell out of uh, 10 to 15 at Young and Summerhill. And then you, know, you have 75 stories at Young and Eglinton now before obviously they fought that. But it just makes no sense. It's like four subway stops yeah. and, you know, one area wants mid rise and the others can do the tallest towers in the city. For me, it's just it kind of blows my mind that we have a, a city that's 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 built like that. Right. So. Anyways, it's a uh, it's a deep it's a it's a it's a long conversation. But I do want to jump on one point there because you have U.S. experience. We had Niall Finnegan on the show, and he was you know obviously reiterated what you said: twenty five to thirty percent of the the revenue in a in a in a condo project it goes directly to the government through HST and development charges and uh, and uh, um, you know building permits and all that all that fun stuff. Do you have any? Uh, do you know off off the, off the top of your head kind of what those fees were in some of those other markets? I know that some people. Have there were some guys on Twitter that was doing a survey of uh, other developers in other markets, and some of them were saying, oh, yeah, in, in North Dakota, it's yeah. friggin' 10%, or in yeah. uh, you know New Hampshire, it's not no more than 12 And so that when they heard it was like 25 30 it was kind of blew their mind, right? Yeah, so so typically uh, in most U.S. markets, um, you're, you're uh, sort of taxes and development charges run between a low of 5% to a high of about 14%. Uh, but to give you a, a, a Canadian homegrown example, uh, and this was a few years ago when, you know, so we were still building both in Toronto and out West. So when we were paying approximately $30,000 a unit for one bedrooms development charges in Toronto and $50,000 for two bedroom development charges in Toronto. In Calgary, we were paying $1,100 for one bedrooms and $1,800 for two bedrooms. So forget, forget HSD and all the rest of it. Just put that, like, think about that, wow. like from $33,000 to $1,100, same time frame, same everything. Uh, also a great city, great infrastructure, you know, brand new hospitals, brand new highways, brand new transit. They're doing it for eleven hundred dollars a unit. Yeah, so I always say, like, what, what, why is our construction and our infrastructure so much more expensive than all these other cities? Right? Yeah, I, I've always, I've always thought that a lot of it just had to do with we're a little bit the victims of our own success, right? So the industry's been going so well lately that they keep pushing costs on us as the developer um, when really a lot of these costs should be borne by, you know, the whole city, right? Yeah. Not just yeah. us. They think the growth should pay for growth. And I, I asked the question, I'm like, if my kid goes and buys a condo, if he buys a new condo, then he's, he has to pay for growth. But if he buys a resale, he doesn't have to pay for growth, right? It's the same because it's not the developer that's paying for it. It's the, the revenue is coming from the buyers. So it's the buyers that are paying for this growth. So why should a new person who is, you know, 
in, in most instances, less affluent than someone that's already living in that neighborhood, having to pay the, 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 the fair share of this additional growth. And then you build a community center with that development charge. And then those existing people get to use that uh, community, community center, center and that park. A and park. And that, everything. That new Sewer subway. Upgrades, yeah. Yeah. Everything. Yep. The, the other thing that's funny is the... Um, and again, you know, we have, so, so here's a funny correlation. I bring this up a lot when I talk to the politicians, um, we have the highest development charges in North America, um, as, as a region. Cause I know people argue, well, Vaughn's slightly higher than Toronto. It's a region. The GTA has the highest development charges, uh, in North America. We have the lowest property tax. That's, yep. there's something broken there. Yep. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm a homeowner uh, in the Yorkville area. It's wonderful. Um, the property tax I pay is ludicrously low um, because I did, it's not a brand new home. And it's crazy when I pay $15,000 a year in property tax, yet I sell a one-bedroom condo to a young millennial and they're paying $100,000 between development charges, park levies, HST, et cetera, et cetera. Land transfer tax, it's, double it, land transfer exactly. tax. It, yeah. It's unbelievable um, why that is. So I do think we need to look at that as well and, and kind of consider that you know, those of us who, who pay property tax, who are living in, in beautiful homes or condos uh, that aren't brand new, um, we also are enjoying incredible equity appreciation. Like most people who have owned a house in Toronto for 10 years, their house has doubled in value, yeah. yet their property tax has gone up a couple of percentage points. So we're really penalizing the new immigrants, the new residents, the young people, the new families. Uh, they're paying the lion's share of growth uh, and the rest of us, the other three million of us are getting away with you know very very low payments yeah, yeah. when I was just I just went to New York about a month ago and and to see some of their public spaces I, I defend Toronto that it's such a great city but then I walked along the Brooklyn waterfront and the, the high, the high line, line and, and, and Central Park and, and you're just like oh this is so much nicer than anything yeah. we have I'm like why why can't we spend a little bit more money to make our 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 city better right they've got a bunch you know? of great urban squares and everything too like Bryant Parks of the world and stuff yeah. right yeah yeah Union Square there's the Madison Park mm -hmm. um, I, part of it too though is is you know one of the differences in the US and again um, it's it's something that we should look towards uh, and you're you know I would say the only example we have of it that I can name uh, in this city is is what's happening with waterfront Toronto uh, and it's basically the idea of of separating um, you know the administration of these really important public areas to you know a conservancy or to a community you know a board made up of, of prominent community members members and so on that are not necessarily part of the government bureaucracy. So people don't realize like in New York, the, the Central Park Conservancy is not governed by the mayor of New York nor the bureaucracy of New York. It's a separate board. Uh, it's a separate group that actually ensures the, you know, that 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 asset is well maintained, well protected, continues to have investment made in it, and so on. And I think that's one of the things we should look at is is this model of, you know, partnering private uh, sector with the public sector to make sure we have iconic spaces that are not just left to um, the city administration. Not, and it's not because there's anything wrong with the city administration. It's just they're overworked, they're underpaid, they're understaffed. Uh, they're doing the best they can and they need some help. 
Uh, and if we would separate that, that's why often when we do developments, we're more than happy to do pop spaces. Um, so privately owned public spaces because they're privately owned. So we can maintain, so at 50 Scholard, we're doing a beautiful public square at the corner of Bay and Scholard, but it's privately owned. So we're going to maintain the landscaping, maintain, you know, everything to do with that space. We're doing another one at, uh, 234 Simcoe, which is Artist Alley. Most of the projects we do, we do pop spaces. So, and so it's a who better model. actually, who owns that? Is that the condo corp that, that owns that? Or it's, it's, it's either the condo corp or the commercial. So depend, depending upon the makeup of the building, because um, we often maintain the, we retain ownership of the commercial. So we can maintain the pop space right. on behalf of the development or the condo corp can maintain the pop space. But again, I think the city is overwhelmed, uh, especially the parks department as to what they can do and maintain. So it is better if we can do it in some kind of partnership, which again is you know, I do applaud what's happening in Waterfront Toronto. They're doing some really good things so far. Those new bridges are amazing. The new bike paths are amazing. Uh, but it's an example of ha- creating an agency that is separate from City Hall um, to, to help make sure this stuff gets done. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I love the waterfront. I go down to the waterfront as much as much as I can. And uh, I think they've done a fantastic job. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the further expansion east with uh, with Dream and Cast Point Numa and uh, yeah, and all these golf has any stuff all like these that. amenities that they're sort of adding in these areas, like that's where they should be pushing density, right? Might as well have people be able to uh, enjoy these amenities. You, t- you I mean we're, we're kind of talking about cities, and uh, you know the, the, this talk it was the Empire Club. I think I said Toronto Light, but Empire Club talk. He said he talked that cities uh, of the past having politicians that wanted generational developments that would create a legacy for their cities. I wonder if you could you know double click on that. What are you know, sure? What, uh, you know, yeah, yeah just, just absolutely. Maybe give us a little bit of background. Yeah, what you're so, talking so, about there. so you know, I think well, one of the challenges, you know, one of the things we look at is we all often think of, you know, these cities like, um, you know, uh, Paris, uh, you know, London, uh, Rome, um, you know, and, and just Europe in general. And, and you see these things that happen in Europe where, um, you know, and it was, it was actually highlighted the other day with, you know, potential for high speed rail between Toronto and Montreal. Uh, it's o- it would only be about a three to $4 billion project. It would take 10 years and we'd have, you know, you'd be able to get between Toronto and Montreal faster on a train than you could by jet. Wow. Um, but it's 10 years and $4 billion and election cycles are three years to four years, mm-hmm. um, depending on whether it's municipal or provincial or federal. So, uh, you know, in Europe, uh, when they did the channel, it was done with multiple, uh, politicians, so different terms, different individuals. Uh, similarly, they did a $13 billion uh, train project, high-speed train project that went across five countries through the Alps that opened, I think, about two years ago. Uh, but again, it was started by a different group of politicians 10 years earlier. Um, here in North America, and it's not a Toronto problem, it's a North American issue, we're so hot on these short cycles that it's like, what can I do in three? Like, like it doesn't matter. I'm not starting a legacy project that the next politician is going to cut the ribbon on. <laughs> I need, I need to be able to start and cut the ribbon at the same time. And politicians just, looking for a win in yeah. their term. And it has to be in their term and it has to be so instantaneous. So it's unfortunate. Um, the other thing too, is that again, I do believe we need to partner with the private sector. Um, cause you look at a lot of the amazing things that happened in New York. Um, the, you know, New York happened because of, uh, families like the Rockefellers. So it was, 
it was, you know, major philanthropists giving back along with, you know, long thinking politicians, the politicians that were looking for a lifetime legacy, uh, as opposed to just looking for how can I get reelected? Because mm -hmm. um, getting reelected, you got to cut the ribbon in your cycle. But it, but legacy can be something you start that actually gets finished by someone else. So I don't blame the politicians. It's it's the media, it's our culture, we're instant gratification folks. Uh, but that that's what I was referring to, is, is we really need to think differently um, because we should be doing some major infrastructure works. It's, and it's the reason why we haven't had subways. Like I applaud um, Doug Ford for starting the Ontario line because, mm -hmm. I mean, the first really new subway, because I don't think Scarborough quite counts. Um, <laughs> yeah. The is first that, new subway in 50 years. Like, <laughs> yeah. But that's amazing. Like, yeah. like, But it's it's insane that we weren't investing and reinvesting. Yeah. It's uh, embarrassing so to go long. to other cities and take their, and you could go 10 different ways to go where you're going. And here it's like, oh, ah, yeah. and do the east. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's amazing getting around in those cities compared to here. Or you take a streetcar yeah. and it takes like an hour to go 30 minutes or go yeah. like 10 minutes down yeah. the road. So. When, the other thing that is, it does seem to be starting to happen. I met with a startup actually this week. I'm big into tech startups and uh, they're actually a micro mobility startup. Uh, Scooty is their name and they just signed a deal with Metrolinks to do, to provide all micro mobility in Brampton. So every go station will have scooters and electric bikes that are run by them, maintained by them. But the most exciting part, and this really is the future, uh, is it's all done through Presto. So okay, that's nice. really what we need. We need a Presto card that allows you to use the subway, use the go, use um, uh, uh, the, the streetcar, use electric bikes, use any kind of mobility. It should be one card, one tap, one price, one membership. You get to that and then the public transit starts to work because it's insane that there's actually multiple user fees that I get off of You know, the streetcar. I still am not near my office, so I have to get on a bike, but I have to actually put a different credit card in and buy a different ticket. Like yeah. that's not how the city should run. It should all be one consistent system. I love those scooters. I did I did them when I was in Dallas. That oh, was they're so amazing. much fun. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, they're, I need these. They're so faster badly. than you think, eh? <laughs> we were I was in San Diego and we uh, we were on a lime or those ones that you can do. Yeah. And you're whipping down the boardwalk going 17, 18 miles an hour and <laughs> I don't know, people walking are getting a little uh, a little squirrely about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 so much fun. It's so much fun but it actually it leads me to my my next question that i had on my on my list here probably seven or eight years ago when you were going to those real estate development conferences there was one session every single time about self-driving cars and how they would disrupt the real estate industry and you had to change your everyone needed a port co-share for your you know the uh, the self-driving cars to come in but obviously that <laughs> seems to be farther away than than ever um you know how do you envision cars and personal transportation as it relates to residential development are you guys even talking about self-driving cars anymore or is that completely off the table it, i i would say it's it's definitely taken a big step Step backwards. Um, I I think you know. The ch here's the challenge: is one vehicle, one person, or one vehicle, one couple is 
is just an equation that mathematically doesn't work. So it's not the question of whether the car drives itself or whether you drive the car. It's not a question of ownership, whether I own a car that sits in you know my office parking lot all day long or whether I car share and someone else can take that car and drive it somewhere else. Um, I think just the math of you know one or two people per car is just nonsensical. And I'm a big fan of mass transit. And I think the future is you know, um, more, more subways, more streetcars, more buses, more micro mobility. I think micro mobility makes total sense. So I think the idea that you can get off of a go train and if you're four blocks from an office, instead of having to, you know, walk or look for a train or grab an Uber that you can grab an electric bike or an electric scooter and get there instantaneously. That's fantastic. So that last mile needs to be solved, but I don't think autonomous individual cars are the future. I do think, you know, like our subway system is autonomous and, you know, most of our train systems are autonomous. Autonomous vehicles make sense, but not on a per car basis. They make sense. It's probably as, not the solution in the city anyway. No, like we need autonomous buses. That makes sense because you don't want, you know, the, the limiting factor for how many streetcars you can have in a city to be how many drivers you can hire. Uh, and the streetcars govern, so it should be easy to make it autonomous because of the tracks and so on and so forth. But um, I think that's what failed on autonomous vehicles is the, the problem I have with driving uh, and I have a car and I like to drive is not that I have to actually physically drive the car. If the car was driving itself, it would make no difference to my life. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I just, I just don't see it, but I do, I'm a huge advocate for micro mobility. Uh, in Lantera, we put uh, major bike facilities into every project. We usually put bike share in every project, like the city bike share. Now with Scooty, we're going to put those into our facilities. Uh, and I do think that um, the city should have more bike paths. Um, you go to all the great European capitals. I spend a lot of time in Paris uh, and London. Uh, the biking network is fantastic. And it's not a biking network of, of fitness freaks. Uh, no, no offense. I love fitness, but it's people, <laughs> it's people in suits and women in skirts and women in high heels. Yeah, we call them the commuting. spandex brigade. Yeah. yeah. But, it, <laughs> but, in, but in Europe, it's, it's like business, it's just about men mobility. and women yeah. actually being mobile. It's not, they're not, yes, they're getting exercise, but it's how they're getting around. Uh, and, and the reason they feel comfortable in high heels and so on is because it's safe. They have proper lanes, they have proper protection, they have proper lighting. Uh, systems like street lights and signals and so on. We have a long way to go in Toronto to to make Toronto micro mobility safe. Yeah, I uh, uh, sorry to interrupt there, but uh, Steve he doesn't like some of the bike lanes that uh, that take up too much too much traffic. But I think if you if you want people to ride bikes, they it has to be safe. It has to be separated from the cars. Yeah. Uh, and I think just we need just to, painting lines is not the answer. Yeah, no, that. you need to have actual but like yeah. like the problem with the bike lanes in the city isn't that the bike lanes are a problem or that the traffic lanes are a problem. The problem is we're still co-mingling. Yeah. Co-mingling doesn't work. But if you create dedicated, protected lanes that you know, do not interfere with traffic that have their own signals is a totally different system. And that's what you see in, in many U.S. cities that are quite progressive, especially on the West Coast, but also in Europe. You see that a lot. It's not bikes 
uh, sharing the road with cars. They have their own roads. They're completely separated. Um, and that's that's kind of what we need to lead to. It's, it's interesting looking at the decrease in car use. I, I've just finished a uh, downtown rental study. And so I, I took a look at a bunch of the, the condo projects. And one of them was, you know, the College Park. And I think it was completed in, in 2008. Of the people that rented units through MLS uh, at, at the College Park, 79% of the people that rented came at the parking spot. So part of that analysis was the tea house. So your, you know, your project. One of the buildings, 9% of the units rented with cart with with a with a parking spot. The other building, zero. <laughs> 157 wow. or something units leased through MLS since since it started occupancy and not a single one had a parking spot attached to it. So it's kind of crazy. I mean, people are taking transit and people are walking but again that's on young street and it's correct and uh you know having the 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 young subway station uh is a much bigger draw than like you said like if you're trying to build in the middle of scarborough and and uh you know you need to get to the go train and it comes once every 17 minutes and you gotta drive there and there's nowhere to park near nearby or the buses are come once in a half an hour it just doesn't make a lot of sense right for people to get rid of their cars when and the other thing too is cars are expensive so so that's the other equation. I think, you know, and this is something I talk to the banks about quite a bit. One of the, one of the other affordability, um, uh, sort of fixes is we need to recalculate. We need to do two things for for young homeowners. We need to give them a break on amortization. So we should be looking at 40-year amortization and 50-year amortization, not 25. Uh, and then additionally, debt servicing ratios. Debt servicing ratios in the past are based on the fact that, you know, you're a nuclear family and you're going to have, you know, you're going to spend 35% on your mortgage and you're going to have two cars, you're going to have insurance, you're going to have this, you're going to have that. And that's not how people are choosing to live anymore. Yeah. So people are are getting rid of their cars or not bothering to buy cars because they see them as a, as a ridiculous waste of money, especially if you live in the inner city. And they'd rather apply that, uh, you know, that financing to their mortgage. But our banking system doesn't allow for that because yeah. the banking system assumes, no, no, but you are going to have a car and you got to have insurance. And you have that, this and that. So I think that's another thing that has to, to change within Canada and within, you know, uh, these urban markets, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver specifically is the banks need to look at it and say, okay, you can afford to put 60% of your income toward housing if everything else is public transit. If you don't own cars and you don't need to pay insurance and such, take the take that $500 payment plus the $200 for insurance plus the $200 for gas, we'll apply that to your mortgage. Yeah. And you have and your dollar can go that much further. I think I think that really needs to change cuz um, and if you look again at at Europe or the US, um, US has very different amortization rates. Europe they have up to 75 year mortgages. So that's why you know we often talk about how unaffordable Toronto is, but then you go to London and you know you think oh my god like a one bedroom in london is 3 million dollars <laughs> but then but then you walk around london and you're like but london still has uh, you know waiters and waitresses and, and yep. retail you know shopkeepers and so do they all bus in from 100 miles away no they just they use different funding models cuz none of them own cars they never have they have much longer amortization and they look at you know they look at how much of their paycheck goes toward housing in a very different way here we're still very spoiled that we don't, you know, the fact that we want to use less than 40% of our income for housing is not realistic yeah. in a city like Toronto. Yeah, it's, I think the, that our politicians are too swayed by some of these doomsayers. They're like, oh, if you take a 40-year mortgage, you're going to pay this much more interest and that's bad and you're going to take on too much debt and we need less. It's funny that we, for the longest time, we argued that 
we had too many homeowners in Canada. Look at the rate in the United States. Look at the rate. There's too many homeowners. And now that we have some of these, uh, you know, uh, developers going and buying single family homes to rent out. Now that's terrible. Our poor people can't own it. And I'm like, you know, you realize that some people don't want to own. They, they would really like to rent a single family home in the suburbs. That fits their lifestyle. And you're making that available to them because for a lot of people buying the house in the suburbs is not an option. Yeah. So they wouldn't have had that option anyways, even if they, even if it wasn't for the, whatever, 8% of least uh, single-family homes we have out there. So anyways, it's a good – I think some people's uh, uh, amortizations are going up to 50 years with what's happened to the interest rates yeah, lately. Yeah. Unintentionally. <laughs> Unintentionally, 50-year <laughs> amortization. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, I think we are, we're, we're, we're pushing the hour mark, but uh, let's see if I had another, another, another question on here that I uh, – um, I actually, oh, yeah. I actually oh, yeah. had one about uh, when we were talking about sort of future buildings and stuff. Uh, one concern I I have that I'm not sure how we're going to address it is as this whole like we're moving to electric cars instead of gas cars. Um, for me, like in my suburban home, I can just put an electric charger in there. How are we going to do that in condos? New stuff you can just outfit the whole parking garage. But if you're living in a existing building, uh, like, are you guys thinking about electric cars and the eventual shift to everybody having an electric car who has a car? No. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So, so here's the challenge is, you know, and I haven't looked at it this year, but, uh, and yes, based on TGS four and, and new standards, we, uh, rough in a hundred percent of the parking stalls on our, all our new projects to allow for electric. We electrify 20% of the stalls right off the bat. So, you know, we're future proof that way, but my, so you are thinking about it then if you're roughing it in, well, yeah. we're doing it. But my challenge is, is that I think it's all for naught because I don't think electric cars are the future. I think that when you look at penetration of electric vehicles, uh, when it comes to single cars, uh, it's still very low. So uh, in Canada, last time I looked, which I think was 2020, three and a half percent of new cars sold in Canada were ele- were pure electric, not hybrid, but pure electric. Uh, that number may be up to five percent, and this is of new car sold. Mm -hmm. So think about it. How many of us replace our car every year? So if if 5% of new cars sold a year are electric, um, probably 20% of the vehicles on the road are being turned over on an annual basis. If If you think people own one. So when you think about it, that means 1% of all cars at this moment in time are electric and it's growing very slowly. I think what's going to end up happening, because I think you're even seeing it, uh, you know, in a lot of of newscasts and podcasts and so on, electric cars aren't that great for the environment because they're very expensive to build uh, from an environmental perspective. The batteries themselves uh, are extremely environmentally uh, uh, unfriendly. Uh, The rare earth materials required for the batteries, again, are not the greatest things to mine. Uh, And you know, typical, typical stats say that you need to drive at least, uh, 80 to a hundred thousand kilometers in your electric car before your electric car is less environmentally impactful as your combustion engine car, (laughs) because combustion engines are so efficient now. So what does that mean? Am I an oil lover? No. But my point being is electric is, I think, an interim solution of, 
uh, because the other thing is, where does the electricity come from? In North America, a lot of electricity comes from diesel-fired and coal-fired plants. So, you know, just because you're electric doesn't mean the electricity is green. <laughs> I believe there's other technologies out there, whether it's, um, you know, hydrogen fuel cells, et cetera, that will eclipse electric vehicles. So I think electric vehicles 10 years from now will all be laughing a little bit like, you know, VHS and beta and CDs saying like, hey, remember when everybody said electric vehicles would be the future? It's not going to be the future. There will be another more environmentally sustainable uh, um you know, way to to operate a vehicle beyond electricity. Uh, and, and that's why I think at the end of the day, sure, we'll do what we need to do because that's what the times call for. Um, I If the three of us were building condos 125 years ago, we would have had horse stalls. So for sure. it's, it's true. <laughs> I mean, let's yeah. park them down in your parking garage. 20,000 20, for, uh, for a horse stall. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you get a free, free buckwheat. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you, get, you get a hose bib <laughs> to... And, and a hay bale. So, so th things will always change. I think, you know, I, I actually think the future is, is no parking. I think the future is less park aids. Uh, more, again, I can't say it enough, more public transit. Uh, and I think public transit, you know, like, you know, the, the high speed train that they want to put or the hyperloop between Toronto and Montreal is run on magnetics. Mm -hmm. This is not even electric. It's just magnets. So, um, so there, there's, you know, don't underestimate human innovation and technology. Perfect. Well, I have, that brings me one more question that I wanted to ask. Because um, people generally, they don't talk a lot about the future. I mean, you'll, you'll, you, you, you get a little bit of it, bit of it but in terms of, the, uh, terms of the real estate market, we don't talk a lot about it. And so if you were to go in a time machine today and go ahead 200 years, would the Natasha residences still be there? Well, in 200 years, let's say 100 years, they'll still be there. But here's what's interesting, and this has been a thesis, a, a personal thesis of mine for a while, is I think that uh, in the future, uh, and I think it's already happening with millennials and such, but I think it'll continue to accelerate, is I think where people need to live in order to pursue their careers and passions will be very different than uh, where they choose to invest. So I think people will always invest in real estate. I think there's only so much of planet Earth to go around. So I think real estate is a very solid investment. But I think the future is that um, you might have a young millennial couple in the finance industry that rent a condo in downtown Toronto because they know for 10 or 15 years that's where they need to be to earn a living and to be to be part of their, their vocation. But they don't want to invest. They would rather take that money and buy something on a beach or buy something in Muskoka or wherever they need to buy because they want to invest and own something that can that, that they can have for life that becomes a lifelong investment for them. And the idea of living in the inner city is more that's where they need to be for their career. So that, I think that's the future. I think we'll be more like hotels. So um, and it's and it's interesting because, you know, a lot of uh, senior executives live that way. And, and I, for instance, lived that way when I um, worked in Vancouver. I didn't live in Vancouver. I lived in the mountains in Calgary. Uh, I commuted to Vancouver every Monday. I came back on Friday by jet. Uh, and I, I lived at the Hotel Georgia and it was fantastic because I why and I didn't I purposely didn't buy in Vancouver because I wanted to reside. I liked my lifestyle uh, and my investment opportunities uh, in Alberta much more than I liked in Vancouver. But that's where I had to work. So I think more people have that 
you know, mobile lifestyle than we realize. And I think youth really believe in that. They, they don't necessarily believe that you need to own where you live. You live where you need to live and you invest wherever you think is the best place to invest. And I actually tell people that often when they ask me, should I buy a condo? I'm like, maybe not. Maybe you should buy a couple of rental projects, like buy two rental properties in Barrie, Ontario. You probably get a better return and then use that return to pay your rent in downtown Toronto. Unless you want to live in Toronto for the next 50 years, like just rent for a while. So it's not the end of the world. So it's, it's, so I think that's the future. The future is the buildings will still be buildings. It's how we choose to own them. And it's similar. No one ever would have thought an Uber would have existed 15 years ago. Like we're going to have car sharing and there's going to be no taxis. People are like, are you crazy? Well, we, were told, so, we were told when we were kids, never get in a car with a stranger. Now yeah. we, or, you know, now we call a stranger to come pick us up. Yeah. <laughs> Stay in some other stranger's house when we're in a different city. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So the way people live will be different. But that being said, someone needs to own the real estate. So from an investor perspective, uh, especially from an institutional investor perspective or from a land terror perspective, someone will always own that building. And, and it's the same thing. Like First Canadian Place has been around for 50 years. It'll be around for 100 more years. The people who hold offices in First Canadian Place don't own them. Why don't they own them? Yeah. Why, why don't the banks own more buildings? The banks have all sold their buildings because they figured out we're a bank. We don't need to own office buildings. We need to occupy office buildings. But let's let professionals own them like Brookfield and Oxford and so on and so Cadillac Fairview, et cetera. So, so for residential, I do think if we fast forwarded 50 years, there's going to be in the inner cities, there's going to be far more purpose-built rental, institutional owned rental, and there'll be far less individual ownership. In places that are more uh, rural in nature and that are more, uh, uh, you know, uh, almost resort-like in nature, and resort's the wrong word, but, you know, like escapes, mm -hmm. that's where people will own. So people will own property in the country that they can escape to, and they'll rent from an institutional um, owner in the city. I think that is the future. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to tell a quick little story uh, and as, it, as it relates to uh, someone that you worked with, but... Uh, when I was starting out in the industry, we'd go to a, a networking event. You wouldn't know anyone. And then so I got introduced to, the, to, this, to this guy. And, and then so when you go back to the next networking event, you look out, look to see if you can find someone you know. And I would always go up to this, do this guy and talk to him. And then I think he probably rolled my eyes when you'd see the freakishly <laughs> tall uh, young analyst with a bad suit coming up to him. But he was always really nice to me. And his name was Alan Vihant. He recently, he recently passed. You work with him for a little bit. I wasn't sure if you had anything you wanted to say about about him or working with him. And oh, absolutely, yeah. So tragic loss. Um, he he uh, unfortunately passed away far too young. Um, he he and I were. He was just a few years older than me. We worked together for six years. Um, I have amazing respect for him. Uh, he uh, was you know had was a great developer. Uh, great with people. Um, his staff were, you know, beloved by his staff. Um, I loved working with him. We did some great projects. Uh, 
in Toronto, but also down in the U.S. Uh, he had a really uh, visionary sense of architecture, had a huge passion for architecture. Um, he was an architect uh, by vocation. Um, but I think, um, you know, I think you can see his fingerprints all over the city of Toronto, um, not only with his time uh, at Great Golf, but also with his time at Concord ADEX uh, and what he did at City Place. Uh, and he also was a really giving person. He gave back to the community through um, charitable uh, endeavors, but also he was always willing to give back to uh, the development community. So he was very active in uh, BUILD, very active in ULI, uh, very active in his um, university alumni. So um, nothing but good things to say, but it's, it's um, very sad when, uh, you know, those of us in the industry pass far too young. He was still in his 50s and uh, he deserved another, you know, 40 years of uh, career and, and, and lifetime. So yeah, I was um, looking forward to having him on the podcast, discuss yes. his, new, uh, his new venture, but uh, uh, unfortunate, uh, tough law. So yes, and my heart goes out to his wife and uh, two boys. Yeah, for sure. So final section rapid fire is basically you know a couple uh, 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 a couple word answers to these things if you feel like you really want to expand on it go for it if not we're just we're gonna throw them back at you so we'll take we'll take a quick turn so um steve, uh, steve. <laughs> mark you want to start it up sure uh, as it relates to downtown toronto is there an ideal building height considering risk and return under 60 50 to 60 stories is the pre-construction condo worksheet sales model broken? It's not broken, but it needs to uh, it, it it needs to be modified. Like it, it needs to evolve. So, so the short answers: Perfect. we need evolution. An evolution. Uh, building on that, what percent of your pre-construction sales ultimately get assigned prior to closing? Less than you'd think. Uh, so maybe ten percent. Interesting. Interesting. True or false, will housing affordability be better in Toronto three years from now? No. (laughs) (laughs) False. Uh, False, unless we change uh, uh, the banking system to to better uh, um, benefit first-time buyers uh, and new immigrants. And two, uh, we need to give some kind of uh, tax relief uh, municipal tax relief to first-time buyers and new immigrants. Kind of covered that one, so you can move on to the next one. Yeah, I'll next skip one. that one. Uh, should there be a 10-day cooling-off period for resale housing in Ontario? No. No. Okay, interesting. This might seem like a weird question, but I'm going to get your opinion. Would you ever wear white jeans? I do wear white jeans, <laughs> but, but not okay. after Labor Day. <laughs> yeah, okay. Because I was considering buying them, but I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, let me ask around. So. I don't think I can pull them off myself. <laughs> uh, if a room has no windows, should developers be allowed to call it a bedroom? Yes. I agree. agree. Okay. On a per square foot basis, new condo prices in the GTA have increased for 26 consecutive years. Will 2023 stop that streak? No. If Lantera was starting three new divisions in New York, Miami, and L.A., and you were given the choice of which to run, which one would you choose? Sorry, you said New York, Miami, or L.A.? Yeah, I didn't know you were actually developing in New York. (laughs) So so, uh, I've developed in all three cities. Uh, I would never go back to California. 
uh, I would absolutely develop again in South Florida and Miami. And uh, I love, we already are doing New York. Um, but if I had to choose between the three, I'd choose Miami one, New York two, LA never. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, that's all, that's all the questions we had for you. We appreciate you uh, coming to the East End and uh, checking out the, the view here. If, if someone wants to find Lanterra or find you, how do they go about doing that on- online? Uh, so Lanterra is easy. It's just uh, lanteradev.com or you can just Google Lanterra Developments. Uh, and if anyone wants to reach out to me, I'm, I'm pretty transparent. So I'll give you my email, C-W-E-I-N at lanteradev.com. Uh, feel free to reach out anytime. Thank you. Perfect. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you. 